Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue our study through this wonderful book. Now, just to recap, in this chapter, Paul explains that when we put our trust in Christ, because of who he is, the God of all creation, when we put our trust in Christ and surrender our lives to him as our Lord and Savior, our relationship with our friends, with our family members, our spouse, and the people that we work with will be radically impacted in a good and godly way. And so we come now to verse 22, which talks about what being in Christ looks like in our work. So would you please stand with me and join me in reading uh, this scripture lesson for today. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, for inspiring Paul with these words. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand more fully uh, what's being said here. We also pray that you would soften our hearts to receive what your Spirit would want to convey to us. And then, Lord, it would, we would not just hear but, Lord, we would respond to whatever it is you're calling us to be and to do. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, after studying this passage, you should know that I decided to devote two sermons to teaching it because in order for us uh, to um, more fully understand and apply the principle Paul gives here. It's important we first address the issue of slavery, and then secondly, that we pull back the camera lens, as it were, and give the big picture of what the Bible teaches about work. And the good news is I'm not going to preach both sermons today. <laughs> then next time, Lord willing... We'll drill down further into those, these scriptures and apply them to our work life. So let's begin with the issue of slavery. Let me ask you, when we read this passage together, did you find yourself wondering why the Apostle Paul didn't condemn slavery here? Did you find yourself wondering why he didn't... Um, rally the slaves to rise up and revolt against their oppressors? Were some of you thinking about a friend or a family member who's written off Christianity in the Bible because of passages like this that seems to condone 
slavery? Well, let me be clear that slavery is as abhorrent to our Lord as it is to us today. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Lord, wrote these words. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. This passage clearly spells out that slavery is unacceptable to our God. And so here in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul isn't condoning slavery. He is simply recognizing it as reality in that day. In the New Testament era, slavery was entrenched in society. A high percentage of the population were slaves. In the Roman Empire alone, there were over 60 million slaves. This was not something that was going to change overnight. And I say that because at the time that Paul wrote this letter, slavery for the most part looked significantly different than what many of us envision today. Many of us think of the lynchings and the horrible abuse that slaves received uh, during the years that slavery was legal and acceptable in the United States. Or the way that some slaves were whipped and tortured and mutilated and even crucified in the Roman Empire. Now even though slaves were subjected to such cruel treatment down through history, the vast majority of slaves during the New Testament era were treated quite well, more like servants. In those days, most businesses, you see, were family-operated. And therefore, slaves were part of the extended household. And usually they were treated as such. Which explains, by the way, why Paul, in our scripture lesson here in, in Colossians, first addresses marriages and then families and then servants. Because, you see, they were all part of the ancient household. You see, it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution where people started leaving their homes and going to work. In Paul's day, your home was where you worked. How many are for going back to the way it was? <laughs> ah, for sure. A typical home consisted of father, mother, their children, and servants who worked for them. And I share all that to point out that while slavery is always wrong, for most of the slaves in that day, life was not terrible or filled with torture and abuse, which may explain why it was more acceptable 
and ingrained in the culture of that day. However, even though most of the slaves in that day weren't treated cruelly, like the women and children of that day, which we've already looked at, they were seen as property. They were seen as the property of and under the authority of the man of the house. And so we can be sure that there were strong feelings of resentment on the part of many slaves toward their owner. And here in our scripture lesson, Paul is addressing those slaves who have become Christ followers. And he's essentially saying, since your life and your identity is now in Christ, here's how Christ would have you behave and respond to your earthly master. And then he turns to slave owners who have now become Christ followers, and he informs them of how they are now to treat their slaves. And so even though Paul clearly disapproves of slavery, he doesn't tell them to go on strike or to rebel or to make life miserable for their slave owners. No, he gives them guidance on how the slave and the slave owners are to respond to the situation that they find themselves now that they are Christ followers. You see, we must not forget that Christ's mission was not to start a bloody revolution against the ruling authorities of that day, even though many of his followers wanted him to. No, Christ's mission was to start a revolution of the heart, knowing that as people's hearts were transformed by God's love and God's truth, in time, they would begin to change what's wrong with the world, starting in their home and out from there including, ultimately, in that day, the terrible institution of slavery. And that is exactly how it played out in history. Here in Colossians, Paul reminds wives and husbands, uh, children and parents, slaves and masters, all those who have embraced Christ as their Lord, of their new identity and their new life in Christ. And then he challenges them to love and to live like Christ to think and behave differently than the rest of their culture. And in doing so, he sowed the seeds of heart change that ultimately led to the overthrow of slavery and also to the harsh treatment of women and children. See, the love of Jesus Christ started changing people's hearts. The truth of Christ started changing people's hearts. And as their hearts were changed, so did relationships, so did homes, and so did evil systems. And even later, centuries later, when slavery erupted in Europe and in North America, it was the truth of God preached by godly men and women that changed hearts and ultimately changed the evil institution of slavery. So with that background in mind, we can hopefully look past the image of slavery here in this passage and recognize that the principle that Paul teaches here can be applied to our work and what it means to represent Christ in our workplace. 
So let me ask you, speaking of work, how satisfied are you in your work? If you inherited $10 million, would you go back to work? You know, research tells us that only about one in three people would go back to work in that situation. In other words, one in three people say they're satisfied with their work. Think about that. Two out of every three people would change jobs if they could. That in itself sounds like a form of slavery, doesn't it? Some of you are feeling ignored, unappreciated for your work. Others of you are bitter because you deserve to get the promotion that you've been hoping for. But it never happened because of office politics. Some of you are just putting in time. For you, work is a necessary evil. It's something that you have to endure in order to get the means to do what you really want to do. Someone put it this way, for many people, work requires them to spend hours every day with people they don't really like, doing a job they don't really enjoy for a paycheck that is never really enough. Now, this is truly sad. Not only because we spend nearly 50% of our, our entire life working in one way or another, but also because this is not what God intended our experience of work to be. And so if we want to find satisfaction and fulfillment in our work, we're going to have to have a renewal of our mind. It's critical that we first see the big picture and understand God's plan for work. However, before we do that, I want to point out that I'm using the term work very deliberately because even though all employment is work, not all work is employment. A homemaker, for example, is not paid, typically, for managing the home and family. But I dare any chauvinist or any feminist to suggest that what a homemaker does isn't work or isn't important. And I can't believe there isn't one homemaker around here that isn't responding. Come on! <laughs> Furthermore, a student studying school or in college or university is working. Similarly, a volunteer who performs a task is working. Even though they receive no monetary compensation. And also, I recognize that some people are unable to work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul challenges us to work. And in verse 10, he writes this, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Notice he says, unwilling to work, not unable to work because of ill health or because of some other legitimate reason. Now, if you're unable to work at sort of a typical nine-to-five job for whatever reason, but you are able to give some hours volunteering, volunteering or to work in some other way, you need to know that Whatever you can give to the Lord, it pleases Him. 
because he wants us to faithfully use the time, abilities, and strength that he's given us for his glory, regardless of our age. Regardless of our age. You know, 65 or 67 isn't the magical, you know, uh, cutoff line to go out to pasture and, and forget about this wonderful thing of making a contribution. So, with all that in mind, let's examine what the Bible teaches about God's plan for work. God's plan for work involves at least three major principles. And the first principle is this. Work originates with God. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Now, keep a finger in Colossians 3, but also keep Genesis open because we're going to be going back and forth between those two books. In the very first verse of the Bible, we're introduced to God. And we find him creating or working. It says, in the beginning, God created. Where there was chaos... God brought order. Where there was darkness, he introduced light. He created the universe, the earth, the, cre the, the creatures of the earth, and he created human beings. And he said it was all good. When he created us, he said it was very good. God sees work as a very good thing. In Genesis 2, verse 3, we read, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, to be clear, God didn't rest because he was tired. He doesn't get tired. He rested or he quit creating to model a pattern for us. We're to work six days. We're to rest on the seventh day. Notice it doesn't call us to rest six days and work one day. <laughs> Maybe some here that need to hear that. No, God saw work as a very good thing. Something that m most of our week is to be devoted to. The second principle we see is this. God calls us to join him in his work. A common misconception today is that work is God's punishment for sin. In other words, people believe that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said, okay, you really blew it. So from now on, you're going to have to pay for your rebellion against me by working. But the truth is, God called us to work before our first parents sinned in the garden, not after. Look at Genesis 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. You see, work was part of God's original design for us. He intended work to be a gift, a, a blessing, not a curse or a chore. In essence, God said to humanity, you know, I've had so much fun creating the earth for your enjoyment. I now want you to join me in, make, in taking care of it. Now, I, I know that some of you really don't want to hear this, but God never intended for us to spend most of our time 
sitting around in the shade, enjoying the view, and drinking lemonade all day. Even in retirement. Oh, there's going to be periods you do that. But most of our time, he still wants us engaged. He still wants us using the gifts he's given to us, the strength he gives us to make a difference in some way. He calls us to be his co-workers. And that's a lifelong calling, as long as we're able. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God made us in his image, and in doing so, he designed us to work. He gave us abilities. He gave us skills, physical strength. He gave us intelligence that can reason, imagine, and create, all for the purpose of helping him take care of the earth and to bless other people. A third principle of God's plan for work is this. All work matters to God. Look at verse 17 here in Colossians 3. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 puts it this way, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Our highest calling is to glorify God in all that we do, and that includes our work. All work, whether you're a student a doctor, a doorman, volunteering in our church or elsewhere, all honest work reflects the work of God and glorifies Him. Regardless of how significant or how insignificant our work may seem to us or to others, it is valuable to God because we are joining Him in His greater plan to take care of the world that He created and to bless the people that He created. And so the first major truth we see in the scriptures about work is this. God has a plan for work. A second major truth we see in the scriptures regarding work is this. God's plan for work was broken by sin. God intended work to be a blessing. And yet, that is not what many of us experience when we work. Work is often difficult, painful, frustrating, just plain hard. Clearly something has gone wrong with work. Now some would say, well, it's low salaries. It's poor working conditions. It's mean and unreasonable bosses. It's self-centered, cranky, and competitive co-workers. And yes, all of these are part of the problem. But the Bible points to something much deeper. The Bible teaches that sin did a number on work. You see, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God put Adam and Eve in a garden paradise and intended for work to be an inspiring pleasure, not a frustrating pain. In Genesis 2, verse 17, he told our first parents they could enjoy the fruit of every tree in the garden except one, warning them 
If they disobeyed him and ate of that particular tree, they would surely die. In giving them this test, God was giving them the opportunity and the power to make choices, to exercise their freedom. They were free to trust and obey him or free to reject him. And he gave that test fundamentally because he wants us to love him genuinely from the heart. Not out of any sense of obligation. Well, in chapter 3, we have the account of how Adam and Eve did what we've all done at one point or another. They used their God-given freedom to say no to God. That is really what sin is. It's a rebellious spirit that says to God, I'm doing things my way rather than God's way. And because of sin and rebellion against God, a separation occurred between God and man and between man and man. Evil entered the cosmos resulting in a broken and a troubled universe filled with selfishness and injustice, sickness and death, and even natural disaster and chaos. It was as if God said, okay, you want to do things your way? Go ahead, let's play it out and see how that works for you. All creation was affected, including work. Now make no mistake, despite the fall of man, work still retains some of its original beauty. It can still be a source of great joy and fulfillment. It can, uh, it, it, it even, but even when it is good, it is broken. Let me explain. First of all, sin made work a struggle. Turn over to Genesis 3, verse 17. Here we find a description of some of the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through pain and toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. This passage tells us that because of man's rebellion, the ground is cursed. It produces thorns and thistles. And it will therefore require painful toil to produce food from it. In other words, whereas before the fall, work was done in partnership with God in a perfect environment, now man would have weeds to contend with. He would have to endure either extreme heat or cold. He would have to figure things out for himself. And so work is a struggle now because sin made work harder more painful and tiring. Furthermore, work is a struggle now because sin brought conflict and hurt. It brought envy, fear, insecurity, unhealthy competition into relationships. And folks, that includes the workplace, in case you haven't noticed. Furthermore, work is a struggle now because sin made work more frustrating. For example, let's say that you're gifted and trained in a certain field, 
but you can't find full-time work in that area. Either because of a poor economy or because there just simply isn't demand for your particular skill anymore. That's one of the frustrations that make work a struggle. Or let's say you plant a beautiful crop, but frost or grasshoppers destroy all your work, all that you've invested. Or you invest hundreds of hours fixing a problem or developing an amazing strategy that will benefit others or your company significantly, but no one notices or even acknowledges your work. These are just a few examples of how sin has made work a struggle. Secondly, sin made work futile. Look at Genesis 3, verse 19. God said to Adam, By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This verse reminds us that sin brought the curse of death into the world, making work futile. We all want to make some kind of impact through our work. But the reality is, one day we will die. And all the results of our work will essentially be wiped away. And then thirdly, sin turned work into an idol. In Genesis 11, we read the story of the building of the Tower of Babel or Babel. In verse 4, we read that the primary reason they wanted to build this significant wonder of the world was, and and I quote, so that we may make a name for ourselves. The motivation that these ancient people had for building the tower is the same motivation that many people have today for doing their work, to make a name for themselves, which is pride. And you see, pride is at the heart of all sin. It's putting myself at the center of the universe, a place that really only God belongs. It is attempting to form my identity and construct the meaning of my life through what I achieve and do and to win the applause of others. And it is this mindset that leads to idolatry. If you are looking to work, to create your identity and your meaning in life, then work is going to be everything to you. It will be your idol, your obsession. You will never be satisfied or content in life. You will be a workaholic, You're going to be frustrated and stressed out, afraid and insecure in your work. And over time, like King Solomon, you will face great sadness and disappointment because 
you're going to sense one day that your work is futile, that everything is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So is there any hope? Absolutely yes. And it is found in the third major truth that we see in the scriptures concerning work, which is Jesus Christ brought meaning back to our work. When Christ died on the cross on our behalf to pay for our sins and rose from the grave, he provided a way not only for us to live forever with God, but for him to become central in our lives, our relationships, and our work now. When it comes to work, Jesus does not remove the curse. It's still painful, still requires sweaty toil, but he does replace the meaninglessness. He replaces the struggle of work, the futility of work, the idolatry of work with himself. Now we're only going to look at the first of these in this message and unpack the other two next week. First of all, Jesus replaces the struggle that we've just talked about with his perspective. Which brings us Back now to our scripture lesson here in Colossians. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now as I pointed out earlier, if anyone had reason to despise their work, if anyone had reason to resent their bosses and feel demeaned and overworked and underpaid, it would have been the slaves of that day. And yet the Apostle Paul doesn't say, well, I know you got a bum deal, so do the bare minimum at work and save your energy for church work. Doesn't say that, excuse me. No, he tells them to be the best workers they can possibly be. He says in verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart. But then notice what he adds to that. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. See the difference that Jesus makes when you bring him into the picture? He replaces the struggle of our work with God's perspective, an eternal perspective. He's saying, if you're a Christ follower, then your earthly boss isn't your real boss. No, God is the one that you're really working for. Now, I don't recommend that you tell your boss that you're not working for him. <laughs> because he may not like that and say, well, let's make it official. <laughs> you're not working for me. No, the point is, you are working for your boss, and you need to respect him appropriately for that. But remember who it is fundamentally 
that you're really working for. Doesn't matter how much of a pain in the neck your boss is. It doesn't matter how hard your work is or how unappreciated you feel or how frustrated you are with your work environment or where you volunteer. Remember that you are doing it for the Lord. When you embrace God's perspective that you're working for Him, it changes your attitude toward the struggles you have at work. For one, you realize you are actually worshiping God through your daily work. Have you ever thought of that? Romans 12.1, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When we present our lives and present our work to the Lord, we are worshiping God through that work. Brian Wilkerson says, worship isn't something we just do on Sunday. It is something we do on Monday. It isn't just something we do in a worship service like this. It is something we do in our classrooms, in our offices, and in our other workplaces. Now, of course, God is blessed when we come together like this and, and remember who he is uh, through songs of praise and, and all that. But he is also honored when no matter what we do at work, in our homes, or where we volunteer, we do it all with all of our hearts as an act of worship to God. And so when you leave for work on Monday morning, you go to school, college, or you go to, a vol go to volunteer somewhere, you would be correct in saying to your loved ones as you walk out the door, see you later, I'm off to worship. I'm reminded of the fellow who was asked, so when did you start working for your company? And the guy smiled and said, well, to be honest, I started working for my company the, the day they threatened to fire me. Think about that. <laughs> but you see, that is not what our motivation should be for work. Look here at verse 22 uh, in our scripture lesson. Paul says we should obey our bosses not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, we should always do our best and if for whatever reason we find it hard to do our best for our boss or our company, we will still do our best with the right spirit out of our love for the Lord. Furthermore, when you embrace God's perspective that you're working for Him, not only do you realize that you're worshiping Him through your work, but that he is working in you while you work. Do any of you have a boss that drives you nuts? Don't put your hands up. Maybe sitting right behind you. <laughs> Do any of you work in a dysfunctional work environment? Center Street staff, please don't raise your hands, okay? <laughs> but do listen what I'm about to say. That rhymes must be from the Lord. Anyways, here, here's my point. Have you ever considered that God can use all 
that is ugly about your work situation to transform your character and to draw you closer to himself, to actually grow your faith and your need of him? Dallas Willard has said, the primary place we are formed spiritually isn't in our quiet time with the Lord first thing in the morning. No, he says, the primary places that we grow spiritually is in our close relationships, like in our homes, our volunteer ministries, our schools, and workplaces. I mean, think about it. Where do you learn patience? Not from a sermon or a book, necessarily. No, you learn it through dealing with the guy you work with five days a week who has a bad attitude and bad coffee breath most of the time. <laughs> you learn it through raising your children or serving children or troubled youth. Where do you learn servanthood? Not so much sitting in a Bible study, which has value, but giving parents a break by taking care of their kids for an evening. Or meeting yet again with that person who's always struggling, always talks your ear off, and yet desperately needs your support. So if you find yourself asking, why is this such a tough place to work? Why do I have such a crummy boss? Or why is it so frustrating volunteering in this ministry? Or why do I always feel like I don't matter, I'm not appreciated for what I do. Remember, you aren't working for your boss. You're working for the Lord. And while you are worshiping the Lord through your faithful work, He is transforming you from the inside out. Next time, we'll cover the remaining verses here in Colossians 3. I'm going to close with this. Tim Keller writes, Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten. And everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all that there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless. Unless there is a God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's call, can matter forever. Church, you matter to God. 
and so does the work you do in his name. You know, I just read 1 Corinthians 15 again here the other day. And you know, after spending an entire chapter making a case for the resurrection of Christ and the implications of Christ's resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul closes the chapter with these words, to those who call Jesus Lord. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Church, a day is coming when we will know this to be true. A day is coming when we will see with the clarity of eternity. Make no mistake, all work done for the glory and for the benefit of self, regardless of how amazing or how successful in the eyes of others, will burn in the end. On the other hand, whether we do surgery or we stock shelves or repair computers or volunteer our time, everything we do to the glory of God, God's word promises us that because Jesus lives, our work, whatever it may be, and however frustrating and difficult it may be, or how insignificant we may feel it is, is not in vain. May we believe it. May we embrace it and live it out in our lives to the glory of God. And for the sake of those people in our lives who are looking to us and wondering, is this Jesus for real? Would you please stand for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to the Lord again. And let's just ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me about work? What are you saying about, to me about my work? About my attitude at work? About my relationship with my fellow employers? And Lord, what is it that you want me to do about it? What lie do I have to stop believing? What attitude do I need to change? Just take a moment right now.
Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word and how its truth sets us free. Lord, you know our hearts. You see the hearts of those who have been resenting their work, perhaps as a homemaker. You see the hearts of those who have been resenting the obscurity of their work, at, both at work but also in the church or elsewhere and have therefore had a negative spirit and not given you their best. You see the hearts of those who have basked in the success of their occupation or their business, and Lord, they've become proud. They've become selfish. They've become greedy. They've become self-centered. Somewhere along the way, Lord, they lost sight of your calling in their lives. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would hear us as we repent of our sins, even right now. And by faith, embrace your calling for our love, for our life again. Lord, I also pray for those here today who have lost a job. They're looking for one or they're just struggling in their work. I pray that you would honor their sincerity and help them find work that would allow them, Lord, to fulfill your calling in their lives and just to make a contribution. Lord, I pray for myself and our entire church that we would do our work, whether paid or unpaid, to the best of our ability, with enthusiasm, wholeheartedness, with love and sensitivity to others. And most importantly, Lord, that we would do it as unto you, for your glory and for the sake of those who need the Jesus that we know and love. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace as you give what you have to him in return. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.